Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, Canada's premier incubator. We'll talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, fundraising, and everything in between. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, tandemlaunch.com, to see what we're all about. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of The Launch, uh, sponsored by Tandem Launch, and I'm Bobby Badochka, your host, and joining me today is partner from Blake Castles and Graydon LLP and adjunct professor at McGill University Faculty of Law, Sunny Handa. Thanks so much for being here, Sunny. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into it and get to know you a bit. Uh, can you share uh, some of your background with the audience? And just yeah, let us know how you got to where you got. Uh, sure. Um, so the the short notes version of that is uh, born and raised in Montreal. Um, started playing around with computers when I was I think in the seventh or eighth grade. Um, your audience probably has no idea how old I am, but I'm in my mid fifties. So that was a long time ago. Uh, we're talking key punch cards and all of that. But just had a love for tech uh, from sort of an early age. Uh, you know, grew up, went to school, uh, did a business degree at McGill uh, with a major in information systems, went to law school. Um, you know, I wasn't really looking for sort of, uh, you know, a, a career in law per se. I wanted to play with technology. So I combined the two um, and uh, just kept combining it. Uh, came back to, I did that in Toronto, came back to Montreal. And uh, went all the way up and, and did the doctorate in law, um, all focused on technology, um, and uh, eventually had to get out there and get a job. And, uh, and I did um, at one of uh, the larger Canadian firms, and uh, they hired me to build a technology practice in the mid-90s, uh, something that was pretty nascent back then, mm -hmm. uh, early days. Early days of the commercial internet, as we uh, know and love it these days, uh, was really all about sort of on-prem software and those sorts of things back then. Uh, and then uh, three or four years later, was uh, wooed away by uh, the firm I'm currently at uh, to do the same thing, uh, to build a national technology practice for that firm. Have done so, and here I sit 20 years later. And, um, you know, as, as a result of having done uh, a lot of academic work at McGill, I started teaching. Um, this is year 26, I guess, um, and uh, have taught generations of, of lawyers uh, in the area of technology, law, communications, law, all, uh, all the high tech stuff. Um, and uh, it's a real passion for me. Wow. So I remember um, when I was around five, my dad came home with the Commodore. 24 or 64, 64. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we were like definitely the first, nobody else on the block <laughs> or in the school had had a computer and we tried to, you know, program a few things in DOS and you still could record on like a cassette. That's right. <laughs> tape. That's right. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was really fun. Well, um, I, I had the benefit of doing a year of junior high in the uh, Bay Area. So, uh, uh, you know, San Francisco, right near Silicon Valley. In, uh, in 1980, um, which was around the time uh, things were just exploding. It was the early days of uh, two guys that eventually went on to build Apple. Um, you know, uh, the first time I ever saw a computer, it was the predecessor to the 64, it was the Commodore PET. Um, ah. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything with a screen on it. Um, um, I might have seen a business computer before then, but really it blew my mind that you could sort of, you know, 
develop code and have it run uh, right there in front of you as opposed to sending it out to some mainframe for, for batch processing. Um, so yeah, a lot changed uh, in my lifetime and it's Definitely. been awesome. I guess you really had some uh, instinctual foresight to get into into tech and law because I don't think a lot of people think about law and tech, you know, at the same time. Yeah, that that's true. Um, you know, being a being a child of immigrants, you know, your your job opportunities at home were were pretty much funneled <laughs> down to certain professions that your parents thought were worthy. Uh, and of course, those didn't necessarily accord with what you wanted to do. So those of us who were creative tried to combine two, uh, two things. And in my case, very fortunate that it worked out. Yeah, great. Okay, so yeah, you were saying that you 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 run or you started the, the tech group at Blake Castles and Great LLP. So what differentiates your firm from other firms that claim to be also, you know, focused on techs and startups? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. Um, look, on the outside, looking into any of these law firms, everyone's got great propaganda, great materials. Uh, everyone can certainly talk the the talk up to a point. I, I think what we've done differently, and a few of our competitors have as well, and, and they they are truly excellent as well, is um, you know we've got dedicated technology lawyers. And and what my vision was early on when I started this was I didn't want to be sort of doing something else in law and have this as my side gig. I wanted tech to be what I did, uh, you know, um, sort of beginning to end. And, you know, when you, if you look at the way law is organized, both in law schools and, and in law firms, they organize themselves around traditional legal disciplines, real estate law or corporate law. Everything's got the word law at the end of it. Um, and that's great. That makes sense to, to those in the profession. But if you're a client and you come in with a problem, it can be a little bit uh, daunting. You know, you can just imagine, um, you know, I think this was from an old Star Trek episode, but you know, what's the nature of your uh, emergency or your problem or whatever, and then you get streamed into, well, you've got to figure it out, basically. And then uh, you, you get streamed into uh, one of the areas, but maybe that's not the right area. So I thought, you know what, technology's got a lot of complexity to it. I've got a passion for it. Um, I don't view it as being discrete legal disciplines. I view it as being a technology company with a problem. Um, and so sought to try to build within the structure of one of the, the big law firms and they've been, you know, well, they, they being me now uh, have just been awesome. Um, like really, you know, uh, allowed me to kind of experiment and try things. Um, and you know, you show up with a legal problem in the tech area and now you meet with a tech lawyer who is very versatile across a range of disciplines and can help you triage that problem right away. And it could be an intellectual property problem. Maybe it has to do with something on the commercial side, some operational issue or who knows what. Um, but you know, we're able to quickly identify. So in other words, we're an industry focused group that is dedicated to the tech practice. And, and that's what we do. And only a handful of firms have done that uh, in Canada. Um, it is, uh, it's difficult to do it within a, a traditional structure. So you have to have, um, you know, um, your partners have to be very um, flexible and have a lot of sort of foresight and, and all of those good things. And if they do, well, then maybe you can do it too. So I think a lot of people just imagine, okay, I have a startup or I'm in tech. And the only thing I'm really going to need a law firm for is, you know, set up my corporate entity and some IP stuff. 
Um, but, you know, you and I both know there's a lot more um, to it, especially down the road if one doesn't sort of get get some stuff sorted out in the beginning. So what are like two or three major issues or cases that you tend to see over and over again consistently that if folks knew how to sort of solve that or get in front of it in the early days, they could prevent them and maybe put you out of business? Yeah. So, um, you know, the first thing to do is, is not so much a put you out of business type problem it's you know when you show up it's it really goes from the last point we were discussing when you show up at a law firm um problem and you're talking to a corporate lawyer you may not get the relevant you know intellectual property questions answered that might be somebody else or so what you want is somebody who's really got an understanding of your business and all the problems you might face and can give you that advice um, as one so that, you know, you're not bouncing between people. So in other words, find a good technology lawyer and, you know, technology lawyers aren't cheap. Uh, they're, they're a rare commodity. They're, you know, usually very expert, uh, but you get what you pay for. Um, and if you try to sort of cheap out early on, um, you're going to pay for it later and you're going to pay for it big later. Um, if you get poor advice on the corporate front, on the intellectual property front, on the employment or HR front early on uh, in a tech company, uh, that can have all sorts of costly ramifications later when you're trying to get financed or do something else. So make sure you get good counsel. It doesn't need to be me or, or my firm. Just make sure you've done your, your homework. Ask around, uh, find out who's in the market and who can do that sort of stuff. Going to the more specific problems, I think uh, one of the big problems is um, a lack of understanding of intellectual property law. Um, intellectual property is the sort of base asset for most tech companies, not all, but for most. Um, understanding how it works, um, you know, uh, how to control for it, how to maintain what we call a chain of title. In other words, ownership, how to control that, put it in the right place. Um, that is something that is consistently screwed up. It's screwed up at every level. Uh, when I do a, a merger and acquisition transaction for a bigger company buying another bigger company, I can tell you those problems are still there. And so if you're a smaller tech company, get ahead of that right out of the gate. Don't wait till uh, the problems arise later and you find out that one of your partners actually owns all of the IP, you know, and whether that's patents or copyrights or or any other form of IP, you know, make sure that that has been properly transferred. Make sure the people you're using, um, and we're using a lot of contractors these days, like it's not always employees. Employees means withholding taxes, paying you know, benefits, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, a lot of people today are opting for uh, using contractors because uh, you know, developers are working on different projects, different companies. If you start using a developer, the law is pretty simple. So here's a tip for your listeners. If you don't have a written contract that ensure that you own the IP for the development they've done, they own it even if you've paid them. So you go and hire a contractor, they work on some code for you, um, you pay them, they hand over the code, and you know you go on your merry way, they disappear. And then later on, somebody comes to finance you and they look into it and they do due diligence and they say, hey, who owns your code? Oh, well, yeah, that's ours. Uh, we paid this guy to do it, uh, but he's paid and it was all paid in full and we own it. Really, can you, can you show me that uh, in writing? Um, well, no, I mean, I just have a, you know, he sent me an invoice. I, I paid it. Uh, okay, so now we have a problem. Now you've got to go back to that guy and try to get him to sign a contract. Well, guess what? 
you may not find him or you may be paying a little more at that point. Yeah. Um, so that's an issue. Make sure you understand IP uh, or that your, your lawyer does and make sure that you get the proper advice and you paper it properly. Other things, uh, I see a lot of startups focus on irrelevant things. They start to, you know, uh, and I don't mean to sound uh, judgmental or paternalistic here, but they, they start to dip their toe into, into legal issues and, and business issues that maybe they never did before. Uh, they're exposed to a shareholders agreement for the first time, a unanimous shareholders agreement. And they've heard that you need one of these. You don't need one of these. Those are, they're, they're optional. But a lot of folks show up, I want one. Okay. Uh, a good conversation is why do you need one and try to talk them down because it's, it's right now three people trying to develop a company. You don't need a unanimous shareholders agreement. You probably don't at that stage. You'll get one later when a finance, uh, financier comes in. And, and then they get a, a draft of it, or maybe someone's given it to them, or maybe they looked it up on the web and they start to read it, which they should. And, and then they start to play with it, right? They start to manipulate it. They say, well, I want this, I want that. And they go down a rabbit hole and they spend a lot of time and then they start to fight with each other. And meanwhile, they've done nothing. They, they, their company is still not commercialized. It's still early stage, it's a dream. Uh, and here they are fighting uh, over nothing. Um, and I see that happen a lot. And my job is to talk them down from that before it starts. Uh, you know, if I see it, if I see it starting um, to really sort of properly sort of teach them, this is not what you need at this stage, save your money. The other thing, and the final one I'd say is money is more expensive than anyone understands. Um, you know, we all, uh, Think that we can go out there and raise money. I got a great idea. There's venture capitalists, venture. Uh, this is a venture. They, they're risk capital. They, they're going to just give me money. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're extremely tough. Um, and it's going to cost you a lot more and it's going to be a lot more difficult to get finance than you think when you start this. It just is. Um, and you need to understand that up front. So those are some, I think, early tips. Yeah. Fundraising. Very hard. Um, yep. So our audience will know by now that I'm a big proponent of getting uh, more women and diversity into tech. So you have a strong team, uh, mostly composed of women, uh, in a field that is very traditional um, and traditionally male occupied. So how did you manage that? Well, uh, I'd love to say it was by sort of careful design and 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 you know uh, foresight uh, as to what was coming, but the truth is. Uh, it just happened that way, and here's why it happened that way. And right now, by the way, just the Montreal group in, in uh, of our team, uh, which is where I'm physically based, but the, the group is national. But the Montreal group alone is, there's myself and, and one other uh, lawyer who are men, and it's 10 women. So there's 12, 12 lawyers in the group. Uh, and so, you know, the ratio is uh, uh, pretty pretty skewed the other way uh, compared to what it is uh, or has traditionally been in, in big law. And so why did it get that way and how, how is it that way? Well, when I started, the truth is uh, I just couldn't find lawyers who wanted to work with me um, because it was too risky. Tech, you know, you've turned it on its head. You're not, are you a corporate lawyer? Are you a, an IP lawyer? You're not really anything. What are you? What is this tech thing? And so um, the safe choice was not to work with me, I, I think, uh, and, and not to follow something that was a, a vision of things to come. Um, 
back in the day, uh, I think a number of women did not have uh, as many job uh, sort of openings or opportunities uh, as they do now. And so, um, yeah, they took a gamble. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it worked. Uh, I just found that I found I could get better quality lawyers uh, who were women that were available uh, to work with um, than I could with the men who were, you know, the, uh, both are very skilled, but the, the men had better opportunities in other areas and uh, the women didn't. So I was able to get great lawyers, like really great top, top minds um, who would actually work with me. And um, as a result, uh, it's been a two-way street, though the loyalty has been extreme. And so uh, a number of those lawyers who started 25 years ago, it's been that long, are still there, are still in that group. And uh, they have watched the growth of tech and um, you know, they are super skilled. They've seen everything. So that's how, well, that's how that happened. The jokes on those old school guys, they have boring jobs and now these women have really great, exciting opportunities. So uh, let's talk about uh, NFTs and crypto and VR, AR and the metaverse, the hot topic. Yep. So these are like exploding right now um, and people are really gearing up for like buying and selling in the metaverse and buying property in the metaverse. Um, yep. And there could be clashes now over um, digital art sales and loads of opportunities for illegal activities and disputes. So are you seeing some early signs of this and how will law and lawyers adapt to these new types of cases? Yeah, so I think the best way to look at it is none of this is new. Uh, this has been there for a long time. Uh, the idea of owning a you know digital sword in a game uh, that you paid for then got you know that changed over time before there was a uniqueness to it and now it's just become monetized and and you can buy things in in different video games etc and so now we're talking about sort of nfts uh you know we're talking about uh as you said vr air those are all built on things that have been tried so from a legal perspective which i think is what your question is directed at what do we do is this like I think what we do is we wait till this stuff really takes root. The law, it lags. It always lags behind tech. Um, and, you know, we saw a lot of uh, early stage legal writing on this probably 15, 20 years ago about sort of uh, unique digital assets that belonged to somebody and how would that work? Uh, and then what if uh, somebody stole that digital asset or got control of it? Uh, what would happen? And so that, that has stayed within the, the realm of law school writing and all of that for, for years. I think when it really takes root is when it becomes big, big, big business. So crypto has now become big business, um, you know, uh, and now, only now, and it's been around for a while, but only now is the law starting to evolve to kind of deal with it. Uh, and, and it hasn't, uh, you know, stabilized at all, uh, meaning the law. Um, but it's starting to change. And that's crypto. When you get into sort of NFTs, much sort of newer on the scene, um, we're not going to see legal reform around that or uh, how that's going to be dealt with uh, at law in a stable fashion for years to come. Uh, it's all about evolution. NFTs will evolve into something else, which will evolve into something. And eventually something will take root Maybe the NFTs themselves are, are it. Maybe that will take root and become big business. And when it does, the law will react. Um, you know, if you, 
you start to think about things in the past, you look at Napster, uh, if anyone even remembers what that is, um, <laughs> right? You know, uh, the law could not react. It could not digest that. It, it, you know, it didn't know what to do with the uh, sort of, you know, file sharing and, and online music and all that. And eventually all of that got monetized, right? Now you're seeing Apple Music, Spotify, all of that, different ways. Uh, it, but again, it evolved out of those early, early days. And so, you know, the law reacted in a terrible way or, or in a way to Napster, shut it down, et cetera. Then peer-to-peer -peer file sharing happened. And then that started to evolve. And then people realized I have an appetite for, for you know, digital music and transferring things online. The smart companies just said, hey, you know, we're going to make that happen. The same happened with Netflix. Uh, the early days, uh, if you tried to put up any sort of content online for, uh, for downloading or, or yeah. you know, viewing, it was shut down. Motion picture industry went after you. The sports leagues went after you. Everyone went after you. Uh, and here we sit today. How ironic. Uh, so all of these are very early stage AR, VR, uh, you know, NFTs, cryptos more, more here to stay. Um, we'll see where they go. Uh, too early for legal reform and for how is the law going to deal with it? Okay. But are, are you seeing any, any cases come your way? Things that so are when like you, yeah, when you say cases, uh, I think people traditionally think about things that go to court. Um, so not so much that, but I think what we are seeing are people show up with business models uh, and wanting to set up contracts and how are they going to relate to to buyers and sellers of you know things? Uh, are these securities, uh, for example, are they like stocks? Uh, and if they are. Uh, then you have the full force of the securities law regime that sort of drops on your head. Uh, so are they, aren't they? So those kinds of issues are absolutely showing up and being worked through uh, by the, the law firms today. Um, and, and regulators in some cases are trying to make pronouncements through guidelines. You know, this is how we will look at uh, cryptocurrency. This is how we might look at an NFT. But it has not taken root as part of bigger law. We're not sort of, it's just not yet fully anchored um, and it will evolve. Um, that's my prediction. And I've been doing this for uh, a long enough time that I think it's a pretty solid prediction, but who knows? Okay, right on. So now let's move on to a topic that absolutely shocked me uh, when we chatted before. So, I mean, everyone knows that we have cybersecurity issues, but I don't think people really understand the gravity and the extent. So can you give us the real deal like really lay yeah. it out, what's going on, how bad is it, and what can people do about it, if anything? So, um, yeah, I have a, a lot to say on that front. Um, so, you know, over the past uh, couple of years, um, my personal day uh, has been eaten up by cyber uh, completely. Um, I'd say 80% of the uh, work I did over the past uh, couple of years has now uh, been cyber. Um, it is exploding, has exploded, uh, you know, um, and yet what, what's odd about it is, yeah, you'll, you'll read things in the newspaper every day, a little bit here and there on cyber, but nobody really knows how uh, profound it is and how, uh, how many companies are being affected on a daily basis. Um, and that's because if I've done my job right and, and the companies are, uh, are, you know, are careful, you won't know about it necessarily because uh, when they are attacked, it's not something they want to go public with. Uh, that yeah. is an instinct. Now, in some certain cases, they have to. 
if yeah. there's a public company and there's been a you know a material effect on the company, they've got to make disclosures. Absolutely, if personal information has been taken in certain jurisdictions, you have to report it to a privacy commissioner, an arm of the government. Um, so that stuff is evolving, but the truth is, everyone's getting hit, um, and the attacks are sophisticated. Some are not. Some are, you know, you just used a crappy password and, and a brute force attack uh, opened that up uh, and now they're in your system. Um, in other cases, though, you know, they will look for uh, unpatched uh, systems that are facing the Internet uh, and they will use that exploit, drop in some malware, they will encrypt your systems, ransom you, etc. And it's big business. Uh, these are organized crime groups. It's, uh, you know, the amounts that are being sought. Uh, these are not small amounts. These are not hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. These are millions of dollars. And for your listeners who think, well, really, isn't that a bit dramatic, millions of dollars? No, I, you know, I deal with uh, ransomware attacks that are in the millions of dollars every single week. And, and the amounts are high. You know, the, the highest amount I've ever seen asked uh, was 75 million. Uh, I've seen 20 million asked. Uh, these are all US dollar amounts frequently. Uh, and then it goes down from there, um, you know. Uh, it's happening. Um, so whenever you see sort of cyber incident or my systems are down, it's probably because there, there's been an attack that's being dealt with. Uh, now, what's nice is there is a group of professionals um, across a bunch of different industries that deal with these. Um, they sort of the firefighters of today, um, cyber firefighters. Um, uh, in Canada, there's a definitely a, uh, a robust but still pretty small group. Uh, we all know each other, uh, and when companies are attacked, uh, a team of professionals shows up. We know what we're doing. Uh, we you know get them through it. It's it's weeks of very intense difficulty for the leadership team, the board, the CEO, uh, and these are major companies. They're small companies. They're family-owned businesses. It's it's everyone. Um, but you do get through it, but uh, make no mistake, this is happening everywhere to everyone and it's not going away. So are you helping them also do that transaction, like pay that pay that money, um, or you're trying to close it off and, and recuperate and not pay the money? Well, I think most companies would say that the latter is the preferred route if possible. <laughs> uh, sometimes, unfortunately, you don't have a choice uh, and, uh, you know, certain companies do pay ransoms, others do not. Um, can't give you specifics on any particular companies, uh, as, as you would understand, but uh, yeah, no, ransoms are being paid. And the threat actor groups that are um, doing this uh, are making some serious money. One of them had a, uh, you know, um, whatever, a, a statement, a, a goal, if you will, for 2020. Uh, 2021, and I think they were looking to raise five billion U.S. dollars uh, through ransom attacks. That's just one threat actor group. Um, so you can imagine, and they they are trying to tax companies all over the world, all over the world, and whether and also government entities, everyone. They're hitting everybody. Wow. I mean, they must be. I'm like, I'm just trying to imagine how they're recruiting and training, like <laughs> this big. Yeah, you, you know, warehouse uh, of like programmers and hackers. And well, the cops are starting to get better at this. The FBI has a, an impressive task force, as does uh, Europol, Interpol, and they all sort of are starting to coordinate the RCMP. They're all trying to work together now, which is the way to do it. And they are sort of um, getting uh, some success. They're shutting down certain big threat actor groups. The problem is they get a couple of the people 
everyone else who is di dis disparate, right? They're not all sitting in a, a room somewhere together. Um, they scatter very quickly and then they go and join the other groups or form other groups. So we're seeing this sort of birth happen out of the destruction of past groups as one is taken down a new one sort of emerges. And then of course, for those of us in the industry, we don't know how to deal with them because we don't, uh, they don't have a track record. We, we, we don't have their behavior down yet. They're, they're new. It's a new name, new people, uh, you know, um, and, you know, stability and predictability is part of how we're able to advise people. If you're hacked by group X and we know group X because we've dealt with them for the past two years, we have some sense of what they're going to do and, and what they're not going to do and how they're going to react to things. Uh, but, you know, with the police taking down these groups, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, it is creating uh, this spillover effect of, of absolute unpredictability and instability in terms of the advisors being able to help companies out. So it's a very rock and roll area to work in. Uh, they, they mutate like a virus, which we know no, very well. No, how that no, works. Pun, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So I guess if people um, are getting cyber attacks, you should be their first first phone call. Um, if people do need your services, um, how can they get yep. in touch with you? Yep. Um, yeah, if they do need my services, uh, I'll, I'll give you an email address. Probably the easiest way to do it. It's uh, sunny, S-U-N-N-Y, uh, dot handa, H-A-N-D-A, at blakes.com. So sunny dot handa at blakes.com. That's the easiest way to catch me. And uh, yeah, if you do suspect that you've been hit with a cyber attack, like don't be silly, don't wait. Uh, you pick up the phone and call. And you might be thinking to yourself, and I think this is an important point for um, your listeners, uh, it, it, your, your first reaction would not be to call a lawyer, right? Why would you call a lawyer? It's a cyber attack. It's an IT issue. Um, so the lawyers that work in this area, while we are lawyers, we're, we're also known as breach coaches. Um, we are the general contractors of cyber attacks. And if you call an IT firm specialized in cyber, they're going to tell you, the first thing they should tell you is, who's your breach coach? <clears throat> who's your general contractor? They won't do that. And so... Um, it is a an offshoot of the legal profession, but don't confuse us. We're not giving you just strictly legal advice. We're also coordinating all of the people that will help you get out of the attack. And it is just a role that has evolved that way. So um, it's known as breach coach or breach counsel. Okay. Yeah. I I don't think people know yeah. that. So thank you no. so why, much why, for why would Why would you yeah. know? Why would you know that? <laughs> so. It's the kind of thing you find out the hard way, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Great. Well, then I'm so glad that we had this chat so that we can hopefully um, enlighten people. And if maybe even there's a way to, you know, prevent these types of things um, somehow, some way through through your help. So thank you, uh, Sunny, for joining us and jamming about all this great tech law stuff. Um, yeah, it was really, really great. Well, it was great uh, being able to talk to you, and I hope your listeners get something out of this. Um, so call I, call if there's a problem. I think they definitely will. Um, and so, yes, thank you to our loyal listeners. Uh, your time is always appreciated. And if you like uh, what you see and hear, click the subscribe button, comment, like, share, whatever positive action you need to take on the platform of your choice. Uh, and you can follow us on social media. 
LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So ciao for now. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. If you like what you see in here, hit the subscribe button, leave us a comment, share the podcast, and follow us on social media.